Hello and welcome to a special edition of Pipettes and Politics. This is um, the COVID vignette edition where uh, I'm uh, doing some friendly interviews with people who are working on uh, representing different segments of the community as they relate to uh, how different populations are handling the COVID situation. So this is going to be uh, maybe a little less science and a little more policy, but that's okay. I'm not upset by that. I am joined by Andrew Kessler. Andrew is the principal for Slingshot Solutions. He's uh, been a partner and a, uh, of mine, and we've been working together in uh, our efforts, for instance, as uh, board members in the Coalition for Health Funding. Andrew is an advocate for addiction. Um, he doesn't advocate for addiction. He advocates for addiction research and helping people to overcome addiction. Andrew, thank you for joining me. Thanks for having me, Ben. Hey. Uh, first off, I guess, you know, the most important question to ask here is, how are you feeling? How are you dealing with uh, your situation where you are right now? Well, <laughs> it's not an easy question because times like this, I always try and have to separate how I feel as a person and as a professional. Whenever there's something that is either a public health crisis or a big political issue, uh, you know, um, I kind of go into work mode and I think about how it impacts my, my work uh, and usually it takes a while for me to come around to how it affects me as a, as a person. Uh, I'm, a de I'm a father of, of two school-age girls and they're coping. Uh, we're doing what we can to stay separate and apart from, from other people, but uh, it's okay for now. We'll see how long it lasts. Uh, and, you know, uh, to, to borrow a phrase from, from people in, in, uh, in recovery from, uh, from addiction, you know, one day at a time, <laughs> so it's, a, it's a good mantra to have. That is certainly how we're living it. So Andrew, I gave a really mediocre introduction to you. Why don't you let the audience know who you are and what you do? I have been working in policy pertaining to addiction treatment for about, um, 19 years. Uh, it started uh, on the research end. Uh, for a lot of your listeners who are familiar with the National Institute of Health, I, I work for a nonprofit that um, did advocacy for psychological research, and uh, that got me involved with um, the institutes at NIH that uh, work on um, brain science, uh, National Institute of Mental Health, National Institute on Drug Abuse, National Institute on Alcohol Abuse and Alcoholism. And for several years there, I, I learned about the, uh, the neurobiology of addiction and learned a lot. Um, like, like many people, uh, I never knew about the disease side of it, um, and, and how the brain is impacted and how that, uh, you know, um, that impacts, uh, how we design treatment protocols, prevention protocols, so on and so forth. And from there, I went to another nonprofit that, uh, was more on the clinical treatment end since 2009. Um, when I formed Slingshot Solutions, I've been, um, on my own, so to speak, as an independent um, advocate, and all of my clients are in the substance use disorder treatment or recovery space um, and prevention as well. So anything having to do with prevention, treatment, and recovery um, kind of falls under my uh, my purview. And when I say substance use disorders, I want to be clear because uh, um, it's not just drug abuse. Um, it's also alcohol, um, and um, while there are other addictions as well, um, we pretty much stick to the um, 
the chemical side of things. Substance use disorders usually pertains to, you know, alcohol abuse, um, both legal and illicit narcotics. And um, the work we do comes strictly from a medical model. Um, it's a disease to be treated. It is a chronic disease to be treated. Um, I won't say like others because it's a unique disease, but um, it's uh, it's something that uh, people have to deal with for almost their entire lives once they go through treatment. So they have to not only get healthy, they have to stay healthy. So it's a very long-term treatment protocol that we're engaged in. What are, uh, some, what are some of the immediate problems that are created by the, the COVID environment um, for treatment providers? Well, the first thing we think of is something that a lot of people are familiar with is the, the group aspect of our, of our work. Um, many of you are familiar with uh, models like Alcoholics Anonymous, for example. Um, and there are several different groups such as that uh, for people who are uh, either in recovery or, or trying to get to that point. Um, so it's a very group-heavy, uh, social interaction-heavy protocol that we're engaged in. And whether that be in um, loose social circles like like AA or, or Narcotics Anonymous and I can go on and on about all the different groups. Um, also, in, in clinical settings and in, in outpatient models, um, we have we have group therapy. So uh, it's it's a very group dependent. And when you're in a situation where they're saying try to isolate, try not to be as uh, as social as uh, as you usually are, that's the first challenge. Um, the second challenge are people who need to go out for uh, let's say um, um, methadone. Uh, methadone clinics, uh, you have to show up in person. Uh, we're seeing a little bit of restricting of those rules um, in uh, in this environment. But but when this first hit, our first concern, you know, one of our first concerns, people have to go out for methadone. Even though there's an exception for, for health visits, um, people have to go out and expose themselves. And probably the, the, the third challenge uh, was we have a lot of inpatient facilities, uh, not a lot of diseases. I mean, there are there are other diseases, there are other health um, challenges where people live in inpatient facilities, of, of course. Um, but um, about 10% of our population uh, that's undergoing treatment is in an inpatient facility, and we need to be sure that those facilities are well stocked um, to stay clean, to stay stay sanitary, uh, to protect uh, their um, their their uh, their consumers, so uh, those are those were at the top of the list, um, and then the trickle down from there is just like everybody else. We have employees, uh, we have um, you know, uh, we have and and many of our employees are in the healthcare industry. Uh, they're deemed essential, and uh, it, we're just going to have to see what happens with the trickle down as as if, if consumers stop coming in because they're afraid to go out. Does that mean our providers can't bill for Medicaid, can't bill private insurance, uh, and 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 you know down the rabbit hole we go. So uh, those are the initial challenges. What about issues of um, of telehealth of people who are seeing their seeing seeking help through you know through Zoom therapy sessions? Is that something that you're finding is widespread through your community? Are there some instances where it is helpful, but in other instances like like methadone, where you know you need to actually physically be getting right. the treatment that's different. What's that experience that's, like? 
That's a really tricky question. And the first thing we thought of when we heard telehealth was, well, we had a few, we had a few um, issues. First of all, as you may know, and if you don't, this is a good chance to tell your listeners, substance use disorder treatment facilities are not usually very well funded. And I'm not talking about the private facilities. I'm not talking about the, you know, the private pay, you know, well-to-do celebrity, you know, oriented, you know, the ones you see in TV and the movies, you know, that's what I'm talking about. I'm talking about community providers and, you know, uh, nonprofit facilities. Uh, let's be honest, this is an area of public health that has been woefully underfunded for decades, if not centuries. Uh, we can get into this, you know, if you want me to get on my soapbox, that's a whole other <laughs> dissertation no, I can I give you, but we'll stay, <laughs> let's stay focused. We'll stay focused on right. telehealth. We'll stay focused on telehealth. So uh, the first problem is um, because a lot of our facilities are not well-funded, the technology simply isn't there. And uh, unfortunately, those that are funded by public dollars, um, let's say, uh, you know, the, the SAMHSA, you know, Substance Abuse Mental Health Services Agencies, has a block grant uh, that goes out to states. Block grant funds cannot be used for infrastructure, so they can't use block grant dollars to buy the technology that's needed. Well, obviously, like everyone else, we have broadband challenges. Um, so first of all, it's not like we have the, the software and the hardware to just hit the switch and say, go, telehealth. The second problem, apart from our providers, is the consumers. Now, while it's true that substance use disorders affect all segments of the population, uh, it could affect the well-to-do just as much as it can affect the indigent, but for the most part, um, it skews our population that the that our um, community treatment providers tend to cater towards are um, um, skew heavily towards the Medicaid population, uh, and they don't have the technology. Uh, so it, it's, it's, telehealth is a two-way street. The provider has to have it, and the consumer has to have it. So we face a real challenge with the consumers not having that technology. Um, I know for someone such as myself who works a full-time job, um and is you know you know fairly modern for example i had a doctor's appointment two weeks ago they called me and said can we do it over the computer instead i said no problem the doctor from her office opened her computer i opened mine we did the appointment no problem uh, it's not that simple for our population you can't just say everyone move to telehealth and then the switch is flipped and we continue on so um, we definitely have some challenges. In addition to the technology challenge, um, because of drugs like uh, therapeutic drugs like methadone and, and buprenorphine, which reduces uh, opioid cravings, um, there are very strict DEA regulations on how and when those drugs can be uh, prescribed. We're starting to see a relaxing of those rules. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm pleased that the DEA and the FDA have done their part to uh, relax some prescribing rules. We've seen some relaxation of what can be done through Medicare and Medicaid. So the federal government is definitely doing what they can on their end to ease regulations and restrictions. The, but um, it's just a simple matter of haves and have-nots. And right now, unfortunately, a lot of our population is have-nots. Thank you. This is uh, Ben Corp with... Uh... ASBNB and Pipettes and Politics. I'm with Andrew Kessler, the principal for Slingshot Solutions. Andrew, also, you can find him on Twitter at SlingshotDC, if you're looking at SlingshotDC. Andrew, um, 
with the funding in the most recent stimulus that went out, um, how is that, you know, how much funding was in that, you know, $2.2 billion or trillion dollar bill that came out? Um, how much is that is going to help to benefit your community right now? That is something we're trying to figure out, of course, like, like the rest of us, I'm sure everyone you have as a guest over the next few weeks or even months is going to try and be trying to untangle this, this but, legislation. Let's start gonna, with the most. Hold on. I'm going to interrupt. I sure hope I'm not doing this for months because if I'm doing this for months, <laughs> we're going to have problems, but continue. go ahead. Sorry. <laughs> but we are, you know, we're in uncharted waters here. So, uh, so let's say over the next few weeks, we'll start with the most basic, which is money given to the substance abuse and mental health services administration. And that was $425 million, million with an M. And at first, uh, my first glance, I was pleased. I was like, wow, you know, $425 million. Sounds good. Uh, you're talking about an agency that's usually only funded at uh, $3 billion and change. So, um, but um, there were some very specific guidelines. And keep in mind, while I work on substance use disorders um, and a little bit of mental health, um, often when you talk about behavioral health, mental health and substance use disorders are lumped together in a lot of federal programs uh, because there is a lot of overlap and because of the way they're, you know, defined by, you know, Medicare, Medicaid, and so on and so forth. Again, conversation for another day. But uh, so the $425 million breaks down pretty, um, it's pretty structured in terms of the subject matter, but how it will be distributed from there is a little tricky. So I'll say $50 million off the top will go to suicide prevention. Uh, 15 million, one five, will go to Indian health. 100 million will go to states in, in the form of state emergency response grants, and it's up to the states to apply, to put in their application, whatever they choose, how, how the money should be spent. And then the bulk, 250 million, will go into an account for community um, behavioral health centers. Um, now, it remains to be seen if you have to be a quality that that community behavioral health center was defined uh, by legislation that came out about seven, six or seven years ago. And we're not sure if that's just the account they're using um, or if you have to qualify by definition as a community health, a community behavioral health center to, um, to, to, to get that money. So, um, but 250 million, the bulk of it will go out directly to the treatment providers. Um, so, um, from there, there's not much guidance. Um, they wanted to get the money out the door fast. And as a result, um, that's pretty much all the language we have. What I just gave you 50 million for suicide prevention. Well, what does that mean? Expanding hotlines, hiring counselors, you know, we don't know. Um, 15 million for Indian health. Uh, will that go directly to the tribes? Uh, will that go towards workforce, towards telehealth? We don't know. There's a lot of discretion that's going to have to be exercised by the agency and by um, the, the people who um, receive the grant. Expanding further from that, um, a lot of our treatment providers will probably um, be able to qualify for the programs that everyone else can. So, for example, um, a lot of our treatment providers are less than 500 employees, which means they can apply for small business loans. Or um, you know, or payroll protection. So a lot of the programs that are meant for small businesses, uh, so to speak, you know, don't only apply to commerce; they apply to to us as well. So um, we've been going through it, and we've been looking at um, outside of SAMHSA what other possible um, levers we can pull. 
in order to protect our in order to protect our providers. I'm going to ask you uh, two more questions. Sure. One, um, one negative looking, and the other, the last one, I'm going to try to be more positive. Um, looking to the future, what are the problems that you anticipate for the community if this pandemic continues longer than expected? And let's say if that means that the pandemic extends into late June, July, August. Well, um, like others in public health, my concern is a potential ignoring of every other public health issue we work on in this country. Just because coronavirus is front and center doesn't mean people stop having trouble with addiction uh, or substance use disorders. And just like every other, you and I both have colleagues across the public health spectrum. So whether someone has uh, um, uh, kidney disorders, diabetes, um, heart disease, you name it, um, those don't go away. And the media has said the problem isn't only flooding emergency rooms and hospitals with coronavirus patients. It's where does everyone else go? The dominoes all fall. Public health, as we know, is a continuum, and the dominoes will fall. And um, we are, despite the attention that the opioid epidemic and, and other issues have gotten over the last few years to bring us to a place where we never, you know, you know, we, we always wished we could be in terms of public conversation, the dollars still aren't there. So um, with all this money going out the door to fight coronavirus, we are genuinely worried um, about uh, what's going to be left for the rest of public health, including substance use disorders. But there's a second, much more um, problematic issue, and that is the spike in um, use that we're almost bound to see um, when the next round of numbers come out, isolation and fear and everything else being brought on by this situation are not a good mix for those trying to stay stave off addiction. I'm trying to figure yeah. out. It, 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 this is a very deadly cocktail, for lack of a better term. It's almost, you know, I think it's the right it's the right term to use. This is a very volatile situation for everybody, but especially those who are have already recovered and are in fear of relapse, or who are now going to be isolated and turn to, you know, possible substance use disorders as a way to, you know, fill the hole in their lives. Um, I think we're going to see a very large spike um, that is go in, in 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 substance use disorders. That if you overlay the charts with coronavirus it's going to be pretty accurate and we're going to need resources um, as these new cases come in. So my, my biggest fear is that, um, you know, is the dominoes are going to fall and whether it's um, because of a lack of funding or whether it's because of a lack of attention uh, to the, to the people who need it. Um, I think we're going to lose a lot of progress we made um, over the last few years where we finally see an overdose number start to come down. Um, a lot of people I work with think this is a very, very dangerous situation for the populations we represent. All right, so I'm going to add in a bonus question, and I know that you are not a practitioner, but um, just with your experience, do you have advice for someone who might be listening to this who maybe has a loved one who has recovered or is recovering? Just, you know, are there things that you've heard that's good advice that you can share with someone that they can be um, helping yeah, a person? Yeah. 
Well, first of all, obviously check on them. And second of all, we are doing, uh, government agencies and the rest of us are doing our part to make sure if you do have access to online, you know, um, resources, they're out there. Um, there are, um, I know the substance abuse, uh, SAMHSA.gov, S-A-M-H-S-A.gov, uh, has resources for virtual meetings. If you're looking for a virtual AA or NA meeting, uh, they're out there. Um, nonprofits like um, the National Council of Behavioral Health um, and and others are trying to post what they can in terms of resources. Um, check facesandvoicesofrecovery.org. Uh, they're trying to post resources. We're, tr- we're trying to bring as many resources as we can to the people that need them. So if you do have online access, I know a Zoom meeting isn't the same, but we're doing what we can to bring resources out to the people. Check online. Um, beyond that, um, just just check in and um, just you know make sure people are doing okay. It's not just about you know, it's not just about coronavirus. We're still even if you don't have that, um, you know there are other challenges just that everyone faces, and substance abuse is just one of them. So just uh, just check in on people. It's great. It, it's great advice. You know, reach out. Reaching out is certainly a, yeah. a way to be very helpful. Um, you know, I asked you what problems you might anticipate for the community. What about the flip side of that coin is, is are there opportunities or are there innovations that may come out of the environment that we're in, right? They say necessity is the mother of invention. So uh, just are there things that you've heard that give you hope to say, wow, you know, this is a difficult situation, but we're learning some new ways to do some things in a way that might help more people than it was before? Yeah, I think some of the regulations that are being relaxed uh, can prove to some can 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 lead to some um, some benefits, especially if we have the capacity in the future to to study them and collect the data and and, and see how they go. I mean, for example, um, like I said, the methadone. Right now, people are all being allowed take home doses uh, that had never been allowed in the past. Um, there was actually the DEA was considering or is considering a new rule for mobile methadone clinics uh, so people don't have to make the commute that the clinic can come to them. We're trying to urge the DEA just to, uh, you know, the rule, comments for the rule were due this week or, or last week, I think, and uh, and they were going to go through the whole rulemaking process, and we've been imploring them, hey, we're in an emergency. You've got the emergency power. Do it now. Maybe that's something that could be helpful, bringing services to the people rather than making people go to the services. We're seeing some relaxation on you mentioned telehealth with uh, with um, with Medicare billing or just allowing uh, people to use the phone rather than uh, requiring an audio video. Um, all of these things, uh, they could have a benefit, but we're going to have to show it. We can't just say, hey, remember that time during coronavirus? We tried this and yeah, it worked. Uh, it's not going to be that simple, but um, I think especially – with the uh, with the relaxation on the medication that that we utilize, there could be some some real positives. If I had to pick one, um, I would probably say that's it. The, these medications we use, um, we refer to them as MAT, medication assisted treatment. There's um, a few different kinds, and the efficacy rate is is absolutely wonderful. Approaches 90%. And um, if you've got a tool that works, and you've got a capacity to make it easier for people to access it, by all means, do it. So, um, you know, in addition to, to methadone, there's uh, DEA restrictions on, on a drug called buprenorphine. And, uh, you know, we'd like to see if um, relaxing restrictions on that um, also can, uh, can play a part during this emergency. So I definitely think there's an opportunity for, um, to find some, um, 
some new methodologies that uh, are clearly beneficial. Great. Thank you. Um, Andrew, I want to thank you for your time. This has been really terrific to be able to have this conversation and, and hear your thoughts on things. Um, I want to thank the listeners for joining us. Uh, this has been kind of a special um, COVID experience of pipettes and politics. If you have questions or comments or you want to reach out to me, I'm on Twitter uh, more often than I ever used to be, thanks to this situation at BW Corb. Um, Andrew Kessler, again, thank you. Andrew is on Twitter at slingshot.com. Uh, thank you for listening. This has been a special issue of Pipettes and Politics. <laughs>